continuing our journey uh, through Matthew that we have just begun. Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, um, many times referred to as simply the Christmas story, although this is October. That is page number 1,497 in the Pew Bibles. And again, that is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by actually jumping back into the genealogy for a moment, and I want to choose one particular person, and we're going to go and drill down into his story just a little bit. So if you look back at verse 9, and these will all be on the screen, it reads there that Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. So Ahaz, uh, he was the king uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah about 250 years after David was king and about 150 years before Judah was conquered, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the people were exiled to Babylon. And he was not a very good king. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 16, we're introduced to Ahaz this way. It says there that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son on the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So not a good guy. He sacrificed his very own son to foreign gods, And he was busy doing all of the things that God had been telling the people of Israel not to do since before he even brought them into the promised land. So in Isaiah chapter 7, we read a little story about Ahaz. And there we find that Ahaz is in a little bit of a pickle. So to the north of Ahaz is Israel, where Pekah is king. 
Also to the north is Aram, where this guy named Rezin is the king. And Pekah and Rezin had come together, and what they had decided to do was to gang up on Ahaz, conquer Judah, remove Ahaz from being the king, and put their own puppet king on the throne. The problem for Ahaz, however, is that he was very weak politically. He didn't have a strong military. And so he is totally vulnerable to the threat of these two powers joining together to conquer him. However, God, even though Ahaz is a terrible person and a terrible king, sends Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says to him, don't be afraid. The threat that you're worried about with Israel and Aram, it's not going to happen. Even though Israel and Aram seem strong, even though they plan to attack Judah, it's not going to come about. And all Ahaz needs to do is trust God's word and stand firm in his faith. So, here's Ahaz with a very real threat on his doorstep. From a human perspective, he's doomed. Uh, These two kings have decided to gang up against him. And even if he wanted to fight back, he wouldn't stand a chance against them. Then Isaiah comes along and basically tells him, don't do anything, just trust God. And as you might imagine, Ahaz is a little skeptical about this plan. Uh, We find out later that what Ahaz really wants to do is he wants to make an alliance with Assyria, who is the world superpower at the time. And basically what that would entail is that he would come underneath Assyria in subjection to them. He would have to give yearly tributes to him from the treasury, and, and he would basically be a puppet of Assyria. And that sounds pretty terrible, but I guess, you know, considering the alternative, it's better. So let me give you a modern example of what this might be like. I have no knowledge of the political workings of South America, but I chose this country because the geography helps us see what's going on here. Imagine you have Peru, and then Brazil, and then Argentina, okay? This would be like Peru and Brazil deciding to gang up against Argentina. And in our modern world, what Argentina would want to do in that case is they would want to appeal to the world's superpower in the region, which would be the United States. In fact, that's what we would expect them to do. And, and it would make total sense for them to do that. And imagine, though, if some prophet comes to the president of Argentina and says, don't worry, just pray and trust God and everything's going to be fine. That would sound crazy. And it sounded just as crazy to Ahaz at the time. And God knows that Ahaz is, is skeptical. And so God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and he tells him, look, Ahaz, I know that you are finding it hard to believe me on this one. So why don't you just ask for a sign and I'll give it to you to prove that my word is true. And so Ahaz could have asked for, you know, a a thunder and lightning display. He could have asked for earthquake on command. He could have asked for someone to walk into his throne room with buckets and buckets of gold. This is the ultimate genie in a bottle moment. So what does Ahaz do? Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask God for a sign because I am not going to put God to the test. Which kind of sounds right because we're not supposed to put God to the test. 
We're not supposed to demand a sign from God before we obey. But that's not what's happening here. Ahaz isn't demanding a sign from God before he obeys. What's happening here is God is offering him a sign as a gift because he knows how weak Ahaz really is. And he wants to find a way to assure him that his word is true and that he can be trusted. But Ahaz refuses the sign because he's already made up in his own mind to do what seems right to him. And he's even found a very religious way of ignoring God's clear words to him. And then we read this. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. And notice again, he refers to him as a member of the house of David. This is what we talked about last week. This idea of the house of David and the continuity with David all throughout the Old Testament carries right into Matthew chapter 1. And here we see it. He says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now you all know why I began with this story. In spite of Ahaz's great sin as king, In spite of the fact that he was leading his people away from God, God and his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his patience comes to Ahaz, tells him the truth, offers him a sign to prove it. He gives Ahaz the chance to believe God's word over his own thoughts and feelings. He gives him the opportunity to trust God's word above what seems right to him. And Ahaz refuses. And so then God decides what the sign is going to be. And Ahaz, as we all know, is not going to be around to see it. Isaiah goes and tells Ahaz then that Assyria, who Ahaz thinks is going to be his savior, is eventually going to overwhelm Judah, and that things are only going to get worse for Judah, so that by the time this virgin does have a child, Judah is going to be a poor, oppressed nation, which we all know came true. Emmanuel Church, God's word is more true than what we think and what we feel. If we read something in God's word and it is very clear and it doesn't make sense to us, we can know that God's word is true and that we are the ones who are wrong. The God of the universe who created all things is asking us to trust him instead of ourselves. And just like in the case of Ahaz, he wants us to trust him because he wants to bless us. God's word challenges every culture. Scripture will challenge every one of our deeply held beliefs. Scripture tells us what to think. Scripture even tells us what to feel. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Scripture tells us what to do with our time. Scripture tells us what to do with our money and our resources. And Scripture even tells us what to do with our bodies. Because I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins. Right? But to our modern Western minds, this sounds oppressive, and controlling, 
And that's because we think that freedom means getting to do whatever I want to do, but freedom is getting to be who God made me to be, which is a child of God who loves him and adores him and worships him and obeys him. God is good. He wants to bless those who trust in him. So Ahaz had an opportunity to rest in God. He had a chance to see real, tangible sign and experience God's salvation, but instead his sign was hearing about God's salvation that would take place in the future. And then in chapter 9 of Isaiah, we find out more about this child who is to come. We're told there that for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so now, We're going to fast forward 750 years and read about how the zeal of the Lord accomplishes bringing the wonderful counselor to us. It begins in verse 18, and we're told that this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And then it goes on and says, Jesus's mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now the situation here as Matthew describes it is a little confusing to those of us reading it in the 21st century because what we have here is we have a couple who's pledged to be married, which to us sounds like they're engaged. Uh, We also read that they have not yet come together which is a euphemism for they had not consummated the marriage sexually yet. And that's also something that we would associate with being engaged to be married. But then in verse 19, we also read that Joseph is Mary's husband. And since they had not yet come together, uh, the baby who she's pregnant with can't be his, but in order for him to divorce her, right, it's weird that he's divorcing somebody that he's only engaged to. And so we, we have to ask ourselves, is he married? You know, are they married or are they not married? And the answer is yes. Let me explain. So in our culture, we have this thing called an engagement. And basically an engagement is sort of a handshake agreement where two people agree to one day get married. Uh, There's no legal binding to that agreement, although there's a lot of emotional investment that goes on. And so if, if if a marriage gets called off before the wedding, it's very painful Uh, but there's no legal consequence to it. Uh, Then, on the actual wedding day, that's when we celebrate the marriage. And then after the ceremony, the pastor will send in the marriage license to the county clerk, and the couple will go on to their honeymoon to consummate the marriage, okay? Back then, what would happen would, the couple, when they got engaged to be married, that's when they signed the wedding license. So they were legally bound the moment they were engaged. And then what would happen is they would each wait in their own respective homes, most of the time for the girl to get old enough to even get married. And then they would consummate the marriage. And then after they consummated the marriage, they would celebrate for a week with everybody that they knew and all their friends. And so they had all the same steps that we have, just in a different order. 
And so when you imagine that they were legally married but hadn't yet consummated or celebrated it, it makes sense to know that they they had to get divorced in order to end this marriage, but yet it didn't have all the things that we would associate as a full-fledged marriage. The other thing Matthew is doing in these verses is he's sort of weaving together what actually happened with what Joseph thinks happened. So we know that Joseph and Mary have not come together as husband and wife, and yet Mary is pregnant. So what do you think Joseph thinks happened? He obviously thinks that in some way, Mary has been unfaithful to him. And that's a pretty tough spot for Joseph to be in. We also know that, because Matthew tells us, that Joseph is faithful to the law. So he is a good and righteous man, and he doesn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace, which means that he actually cares about her, even though she has been unfaithful to him. Or more likely what he thinks is that some man has come and taken advantage of her. But if he marries her, it would tarnish his own reputation because everyone would assume that he was the one who got her pregnant before the proper time. And so what he decides to do is to divorce her quietly. Now, if he really wanted to proclaim his innocence and make sure that everybody knows that it wasn't him, is he would have to bring her to the county or the, the town square and say, this woman has sinned, and this is not my child, and he would have to make a big spectacle of it to totally clear his name. But Joseph, because he's a good guy, wants to just walk away. He wants to preserve as much dignity as he can for her, but he also wants to do what is the right thing. So that's what Joseph thinks happened. But see, we know what really happened. We know that Mary has not been immoral. We are told that she is found to be pregnant, which likely means she wasn't going around announcing to everybody that she was pregnant because she is fully aware of the very vulnerable situation that she is culturally and financially and legally, right? She's she's not a moron. She knows what everybody thinks of her situation. Here's what the law of Moses said should happen to people in Mary's apparent situation. It says there that if a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, You shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. Whoa. Now, thankfully, for Mary's sake, this law wasn't really practiced at the time. But just the fact that this law existed likely put a little bit of fear in Mary's heart. And so Joseph, he's a good man. He understands what's right and wrong. He also understands Mary's situation. He wants to protect her as best he can. But even if he had been told about Mary's claim that the child that was in her is from the Holy Spirit, it's pretty clear that he found that just as hard to believe as you and I would. So he makes up his mind to divorce her. He goes to sleep. And then we read this. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Notice again, the son of David language, right? That continuity. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So let's stop and just consider the dilemma that Joseph is now in. 
On one hand, left on his own, everything Joseph thinks, given the laws of nature, given everything Joseph knows about the law of Moses, given everything that he's ever experienced in his life, everything that he, that he feels, all that is telling him that Mary has been unfaithful to him and is pregnant with somebody else's child. Okay? And if he marries her, he's basically admitting to the whole community that he is the one who got her pregnant before the proper time. Which isn't true. On the other hand, he did have a dream, you know, where an angel came to him and told him that this is Mary's child, or this is the the child from the Holy Spirit. What a similar situation to Ahaz. Right? Ahaz's situation, right, he's the king, and it's a political situation. Joseph is a, is a poor carpenter, and it's a social and relational situation, but, but it's exactly the same. Both are faced with trusting God's word or trusting what they think and they feel. So how are we supposed to act in these situations? And the answer is, we are to trust God's word. Because God's word is more true than what we think and what we feel. That's why we read in verse 24 and 25, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded. Took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Wow. Joseph obeys. Joseph looks at the facts. He he looks at what he thinks he knows and what he feels is right, and instead, he obeys the word of God. He took Mary home as his wife, which probably means they finalized their marriage probably a lot sooner than they had planned and with a lot less celebration from the community. He preserves her virginity until Jesus is born, and then he names Jesus, which at that time was a very significant thing because that means that he is saying, I am the Father and this is my Son. What a good man. What a self-controlled self-disciplined, self-sacrificial man. Clearly, his priorities were to trust God and trust his word above, you know, fulfilling himself in spite of the consequence, right? He basically signed up for a life where everyone thought he was an immoral man who took advantage of his young wife. He believed Mary's story about being a virgin because as improbable as it sounded, it was confirmed by the words of God So my question for us this morning is, what is the difference between Joseph and Ahaz? How come Ahaz had the same opportunity to trust God's word instead of his own thoughts and feelings and refused, while Joseph woke up from his dream and did what the angel commanded? And the answer is faith. Faith. Joseph had faith, Ahaz did not. Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism defines true faith. Uh, The question is, what is true faith? And the answer is, true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that 
Everything God reveals in his word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. You see, the reason that knowing that everything God reveals in his word is true is a part of true faith is because unless everything that is in God's word is true, then we cannot have assurance of our salvation. It is in the scriptures where we learn about Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and all that he has done to save weary sinners from their sin. And if every word in there is not true, then I cannot know that I am saved. And then when we hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners, when we hear that word, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and creates faith in us, just like he came and created a child in the womb of a virgin. And then he enables us, in spite of our sin and the natural rebellion of our hearts, to have assurance that out of sheer grace, earned for us by Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that I am saved, and that I am forever right with God. Notice, faith is not anything that we do. We hear, we know, we rest, we trust. It's all a gift from God. And Joseph's obedience did not create faith. Joseph obeyed out of the outpouring of the faith that he already had. So when we have faith, we can, like Joseph, trust the words of God above our own thoughts and feelings. We can look at what seems right to us, and we can choose to trust the words of Scripture instead. Now, this is not a be like Joseph and don't be like Ahaz sermon. Because the truth is that most of us are more like Ahaz than Joseph. And the last thing I want anyone to leave here doing is feeling like they have to try to be like Joseph so they can be assured of God's love for them. Because that will never lead to assurance. Because what will happen is we will try and try and try and always find that we are more like Ahaz than Joseph. Instead, what we need to do is what Matthew is doing here. He's showing us Jesus. He's introducing us to the only faithful man who ever lived. He wants us to hear the word of God, that Jesus fulfills the word of God, because Jesus is the word of God. And Matthew is showing us here that every word from God that we have in Scripture points us to Jesus. As Paul says, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. 
Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 is a word about Christ. This is a story about Christ. This is a story about God becoming human to save us from our sins. This is a story about God giving great faith to weak and weary sinners just like you and me so that they could perform great acts of faith and God could fulfill his promises. This is a story about Christ because in it we learn that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, making him God. And since he is God, he he wasn't conceived by a man. He was sinless, free of the curse of Adam. Yet he is really and truly a human because just like every other man who ever lived, he grew in the womb of a woman. This is a story about Christ because in order to have a true son of David, he would need to be descended of, a descendant of David. But he doesn't have an earthly biological father. So God raises up a faithful son of David named Joseph, willing to sacrifice his own future and reputation to adopt the son of God as his own. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, God comes to us in his word. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord said. See, God speaks the truth, whether it's something that is true or something that will come true. And 750 years before this moment, God spoke through a prophet, and then God spoke to Joseph through an angel, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all God ever said in the Old Testament. He is the very center of everything God speaks to us in the New Testament. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. You see, God once spoke through prophets and through various ways like angels and dreams, but now he has spoken by his son. And as we go through Matthew, we're gonna see that everything God said about Jesus in the Old Testament is fulfilled by him in the New Testament and that together, Old and New Testament, we have the full revelation of the son of God. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're struggling to think thoughts that are true according to God's word. I don't know if you're struggling to feel feelings that are true according to God's word. Maybe you're struggling to place your life under God's word in terms of what you do with your time, in terms of what you do with your resources or in terms of what you do with your body. But I will tell you, the answer is not to pray harder and to try to have more faith. The answer is to look to Jesus, to just behold the wondrous mystery of God and his great love for sinners coming to this earth, coming to us through the womb of a virgin, so that we could know that he is fully God and fully man and fully able to save us from all of our sins. Look to him 
cast your heart on him, gaze at him, know him, love him, soak in his wonderful grace. Because that is how weak and weary sinners are sustained through a life of trial and temptation to be like Ahaz. Only in knowing Christ and what he has done for us and his life, death, and resurrection do we find the message that creates faith in all of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we know that it is a great temptation, especially in our modern world, to trust our own thoughts and feelings above your word. I pray, God, that we would all look to Christ. We would see you fulfilling your word in Christ. We would see him being your word. And we would know, God, that through his life, death, and resurrection, his love for sinners shows us and assures us of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And that we too, like others, can have our sins forgiven and know that we are right with you every moment of this life until we close our eyes on this side and open them on the other And then we will see you face to face. And in that moment, we will be like you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.